0: Welcome to the emergency management network podcast, emergency management's trusted voice sponsored by disaster tech, the natural disaster and emergency management expo and Titan HST. Effective leaders take a personal interest in the long-term development of their team and they use tact and other social skills to encourage team members to achieve their best. It isn't about being nice or understanding. It's about tapping into individual motivations in the interest of furthering an organization's goal. It's not hard to state in a few words what successful leaders do in making them effective, but it is harder to tease out the components that determine their success. The usual method is to provide adequate recognition of each team member's function so that they can foresee the satisfaction of some major interest of theirs in carrying out the group enterprise. See, crude forms of leadership rely solely on single source of satisfaction, such as monetary rewards or alleviation of fears about various kinds of insecurities. See, the task is adhered because the following orders will lead to a paycheck, or if they don't, they might end up being unemployed. No one could doubt that the forms of motivation are effective within limits, in a mechanical way, they do work for the worker's self interest, and it also works in the interest of the employees or the group in one way. But it can also bring in doubt and weakness, and of such simple techniques, human beings are not machines with a single set of pushed buttons. When their complex response to love, prestige, independence, achievement, and group membership are unrecognized on the job, they perform best as an autotom who you know brings far less than their maximum efficiency to the task, becomes rote, becomes routine. And at worst, they become rebellious, who consciously or unconsciously sabotage the activities they're supposed to be furthering. It's ironic that our basic image of the leader is often that of a military commander, because most of the time, at least military organizations, are the purest example of unimaginative application of simple reward and punishment as motivating devices. The invention of the World War II term snafu, situation normal, and all, f- well, I can't really say that in this podcast, merely epitomize what literature about military life from Greece and Rome to the present day has been amply recorded that leadership in the military is not always respected by the enlisted members and that the command doesn't have a clue what's going on in the field and that only members of the team that they are with are fully trusted and everything else is suspect. Now, in defense of the military, two things are relevant. The military is, undeniably has special problems because people get killed and they have to be replaced and there are important reasons for treating them uniformly and mechanically. And two, the clarity about the duties and responsibilities are maximized by the autocratic chain of command. It is not only essential to warfare, but undoubtedly important for the most group enterprises. In fact, any departure from essential military type of leadership is still considered, in some circles, a form of anarchy. We have heard the cry that somebody has to be the boss. I suppose that, well, seriously no one will disagree. But it's dangerous to confuse the chain of command or table of organization with the method of getting things done. It's instead compared to the diagram of a football play which shows the general plan and how each individual contributes to it. The diagram is not leadership by itself. It has no bearing one way or the other how well that play will be executed. Yet that very question of effective execution is the problem for leadership rewards and threats may help each player to carry out his assignment but in the long run if success is to be continued and morale is to survive each player must not only fully understand his part in relation to the group effort he must also want to carry it out the problem of every leader is to create those wants and to find ways to channel the existing wants into effective cooperation when the leader succeeds it will be because he has learned two basic lessons. People are complex and all people are different. Human beings respond not only to the traditional carrot and stick used by the driver of a donkey, but also ambition, patriotism, love of God and the beauty, boredom, self-doubt, and many more dimensions and patterns of thought that make them feel, well, make them human but the strength is important for these interests, not are all the same for everyone, nor to the degree which they can be satisfied by their job. One person may have deep religious needs, but find the fact quite irrelevant on their daily job. Another may find their main satisfaction in solving intellectual problems and never be led to discover that their love for chess problems and mathematical puzzles can be applied at work. Leaders need to know their team members. An ideal organization should have workers at every level reporting to someone whose domain is small enough to enable them to get to know as human beings those that report to them. When I think of coordination, especially when it comes to emergency management, I like to talk about, well, the orchestra. If one person is not playing correctly on that team, the sound is not beautiful, it's terrible. So the conductor of an orchestra may perhaps serve a useful model as we talk about relationships and leadership situations. Obviously enough in this context is the fact that the people must have the skills and training for the roles. Not all group failures are the boss's fault. John Williams, one of the most famous American conductors today, could not get great music from a high school band. A psychological setting must be established for the common task. The conductor must set up their ground rules their signals, and their taste in such a way that the mechanics of getting a rehearsal started do not interfere with the musical purpose. And just as the conductor must establish an agreement about the promptness at rehearsals and talking between members and between sets, you know, new versus old music, and a dozen other things that might otherwise come between them and their colleagues in their common aim to provide beautiful music. Most important of all, The musicians must share the satisfaction with their leader in the production of the music or of the music's certain quality. Unless they individually achieve a sense of accomplishment or even fulfillment, the leadership has failed and they will not make great music. And some distinguished conductors have been known as being petty tyrants. Others play poker with the musicians and become the godparent of their babies. But what is the great conductor achieves each musician's conviction? that they are taking part in and making a kind of music that can only be made under such a leader. Personal qualities and mannerisms have secondary importance as they serve as reminders of resonating and reinforcing the vital image of the conductor and the highest musical standards. Leadership, despite what some think, consists more than just understanding people or being nice to people or not pushing others around. Democracy is sometimes thought to imply that no division of authority or to imply that everyone can be their own boss. Of course, this is nonsense. Leadership can be democratic in the sense of providing the maximum opportunity for growth for each team member without creating anarchy. In fact, orderly arrangement of functions and the accurate perception of the leader's role is that the arrangement must always precede the development of their abilities to the maximum a leader's job is to provide recognition of roles and functions within the group that permits each member to satisfy and fulfill some major motive or interest thank you everybody for listening today and please remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player and give us five stars if you can until next time stay safe stay hydrated